0: We are back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more light, and more love. Well, how about all three? We have incredible guests today. Mike Ricksecker is here. He's written several books, but we're going to be talking about his most recent book, Alaska's Mysterious Triangle. It's going to be incredible. But first, I need you to do something for me. Go to BlueCobraCBD.com. That's BlueCobraCBD.com, and there you will find the highest quality CBD oil ever created on earth. This oil is unlike anything you will find on the market, period, in relation to CBD products. And the reason that is, is because the extraction method used to extract the CVD from the hemp is a proprietary method called the HIT extraction method. It was developed by a man. His name's Howard HIT, also known as Big H. And he developed something so magical and so special in the ocean of CVD products that are out there with some of the chemically extracted CBD products that use chemicals, solvents, and gases. This is the only product that is like this. There's nothing else. This is the top tier. Howard uses no chemicals, no solvents, no gases in the extraction process. His hit extraction method. It is 100% natural. It's 100% organic. The hemp Used is 100% organic, oregon grown hemp. He has the King Cobra, which is the maximum strength, Little King Cobra, which is regular strength, and for animals, is Wild Thing, and you give that to your pets. It's CBD for Pets. Contact him at bluecobracbd at gmail.com. He'll tell you all about it. It can be shipped internationally and to other places, but check your country's laws before talking to Howard about this. And he's available, totally available at his website, which is again, bluecobracbd.com. Everyone go there, get a bottle, report to me, bluecobracbd.com. And lastly, one more thing. Follow me on Instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That is the address. You can follow us there. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you go to get your podcast, click that button that connects us so you know when people like Mike Ricksecker is going to be on. You know about what we're doing instantly. You get those notifications. And most importantly, tell a friend, tell someone that you know that loves these type of podcasts, that would like to learn more about just this strange, mysterious world that we live in. Bring them here. You know them. Midnightonearth.com. Okay, well, we are here with Mike Ricksecker. We're going to talk to him in just a second. I'm going to read his bio. Here we go. Mike Ricksecker is the author of the Amazon best selling A Walk in the Shadows, A Complete Guide to Shadow People, eight historic paranormal books, and the esoteric tome that we're going to talk about today, Alaska's Mysterious Triangle. He has appeared on multiple television shows and programs as a paranormal historian, including travel channels The Alaska Triangle, history channels Ancient Aliens. Discovery Plus's Fright Club, Animal Planet's The Haunted, Bio Channel's My Ghost Story, and more. Mike also produces his own internet supernatural-based shows on the Haunted Road Media YouTube channel and is the producer and director of the docuseries The Shadow Dimension, available on several streaming platforms. On Tuesday and Wednesday nights, he hosts the Edge of the Rabbit Hole Livestream show and the Connecting the Universe Interactive class, respectively. Haunted Road Media is also his own paranormal and supernatural book publishing and video production company, representing a number of paranormal authors, winning the award for excellent media in the paranormal field, at the 2019 ShockFest Film Festival. Mike's historic paranormal articles have been published in the Baltimore Sun Paranormal Underground Magazine, and he previously wrote an Oklahoma City Paranormal column for Examiner.com. His work has also been featured in the Oklahoman, the Frederick News Post, Marshall University's The Parthenon, and Louisiana State University's Civil War Book Review. He now hosts many of these articles, along with the informational videos and learning courses on the Connected Universe Portal website. A native of Cleveland, Ohio, Mike is a U.S. Air Force veteran with a degree in simulation programming, interesting, and is an avid baseball fan. And he is here with us now. Mike, how are you doing today? Thank you for joining us.
1: (laughs) Doing pretty well, Jake. Thanks for having me today.
0: We're going to talk about Alaska's mysterious triangle, but really this book touches on a lot of things. It's not just the triangle. It talks about a lot of mysterious paranormal things. So as a human, when did you start to open up to these type of topics? When did these things start to interest you in your development?
1: Yeah, I mean, it started at a really early age. Like a lot of people, uh, you know, I had experiences. My my first significant one, I may have had some younger, but hard to know. But uh, my first significant paranormal experience, I was about eight years old, woke up in the middle of the night, and there was this tall, dark figure standing in the corner of my bedroom. Uh, you know, I was very frightened at the time. You know, this is what we would typically call a shadow person or shadow figure, but had no idea at the time. That's what you called it. You know, I, I just thought there was an intruder in the house. Somebody had broken in and it was about to kill me. Oh my uh, God. But what'd you think at that age? <laughs> For, fortunately, I'm still alive to tell the tale, which is great. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thankfully.
1: Yeah, thankfully. Uh, but you know, it, it did get physical with me. Um, really? You know, I was, yeah, it did. Uh, I was trying to scream my mouth opened up. Nothing came out. Cause I was just too terrified, too frightened. I'm just a little kid. It approached the bed. It leaned over and I'm staring up in this blank black face. There's nothing there. No eyes, no nose, no mouth, nothing there. It then grabbed me by the wrists, crossed my arms across my body, and it ran off down the hall of all places into a closet. So I finally found my voice, found my legs, ran off to my parents' bedroom screaming about what had happened. Now, they're trying to calm me down, console me. They're nice, kind parents trying to tell me that I just had a bad dream, but I had been awake for this whole thing. Um, would never have called that a haunted house. It was really like a one-off at that particular house. But that was my first significant experience. I had several more growing up.
0: So do you think there's something special about you yourself, perhaps your family history or your genealogy, something that might attract these types of experience to you at such a young age?
1: Well, there's something there because you know I um, whether it's family or and I would say some somewhat to do with family because another house that we moved into when I was 13, uh, my mom also saw something at that house that I was seeing, which was another shadow based form, different than the one that I saw when I was eight. This one was like more translucent, um, never got physical or anything. You just kind of see him in a doorway and he, you know, go running off. And she had seen this thing too. And I actually ended up getting playful with it because I, I approached her. I was like, Mom, I keep seeing this thing. You know, I'm just unpacking boxes, putting things away, and he's staying in my doorway. So I'm like, Mom, I, I keep seeing this. And she's like, Well, I've seen it too. But she was very nonchalant about it. So it was like great in a couple of in a couple of different ways. For one, she affirmed what I had seen. So, okay, I'm not crazy. That's great. And secondly, because of her disarming manner, I wasn't really concerned about it. And I got playful with it. I started calling him Tom, like Peeping Tom, because he'd wow. peep in my bedroom. I'd say, Hi, Tom, and <laughs> off we <the show>. go.
0: <laughs> wow, interesting. So this is a different location, mm-hmm. totally different parameters. And yet here you are having a supernatural experience, way different entity, different frequency, very benevolent. But here you are having this. So this is something you're attracting personally, you think.
1: Yeah. And that's interesting that you use the term frequency because I think that's um, at the base of this, when people are having these different experiences, I I think that's what it comes down to. Like uh, me, for instance, I see more shadow based entities than something like an apparition. I do see apparitions from time to time, but normally more shadows than ghosts or apparitions or these sorts of things where other people are the opposite. They'll see more apparitions and shadows and people wonder, okay, why is that? I think that comes down to personal resonance frequency and vibration where Um, You know, we each have a toroidal field of energy that surrounds us, it's vibrating at at a specific frequency, and everybody's a little bit different than the next person. You know, it's like a range for the human body, but we're all a little different. And even those entities themselves have their own energy and vibration. And so, I think what ends up happening when you have experiences with some of these different entities and beings that your personal resonance will. Kind of become in tune to that. They'll rec- it'll recognize the frequency and vibration of those different types of entities. So when a shadow is nearby, some sort of shadow form or shadow entity, my body's more prone to be able to pick up on that and be like, "Oh, there it is." Than say other other beings and entities.
0: Do you think that you adjust to them, or did they adjust to your frequency?
1: Um, I th- I think I'm adjusting to them, or I have adjusted to them to their frequency, uh, and so that's why I'm able to see them more often than other things.
0: Interesting. So you think that some people with these paranormal abilities, they're able to see multiple entities and also sense things. You think about re- remote viewing and things like that, that they're just on that frequency and whatever frequency they're broadcasting, they can tune into anything that falls within that bandwidth.
1: Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, would, <sighs> and there's, you know, some gray area where we might be able to see, you know, some of these other things, but that's why, you know, we could be out on a paranormal investigation or something like that. And one person, you know, Sees this figure or form or whatever it is, and the person standing right next to them does not see the same thing. There was a a, a great uh, a great case in point is um, an investigation we ran a few years ago, and there was this. We're at an old hotel, uh, Miller Springs Hotel, Alton, Illinois, very historic, wonderful building, and we're in the old abandoned part in the top floor, and. You know, there are five of us there that witnessed this rolling black smoke morph into the apparition of a little girl, but we all saw the little girl a bit differently. Like I saw her fully formed from the head down to about her knees and then she dissipated away while others saw her like fully formed at the feet, but they weren't seeing a head or anything like that. So we all saw her a little differently, even though we all saw pieces of her. So it's it's interesting. Wow.
0: There's, just, there's a lot of room for research there for sure. Yeah. It's all very, very new, but yet ancient at the same time. So, what do you think these shadow people are like? What do they represent? I mean, there
1: are a lot of different things. So, I mean that that question right there—what is a shadow person—that opens a whole can <laughs> of worms, which is why I wrote a whole book on it. <laughs> yes, know? yes, because um, you know some are just some are just human spirits can't fully manifest as an apparition, so they come off as a shadow. You know, so. I Shadow being could be somebody's Aunt Jane or grandmother or what have you. Um, Some of them are ETs or extraterrestrials, and they, you know, either it's their technology that maybe some sort of cloaking device that isn't quite cohesive with our eyes. Like They don't understand the physiology of our eyes. They're not completely cloaked to us. They come off as this shadow form or some people seem like a, a shimmer man sort of thing. Uh, some of these are interdimensional beings passing in and out of our plane of existence, watching, studying us, that sort of thing, uh, which kind of adheres to the ET aspect as well. Some of them, I believe, are, are time slips that are they're passing in and out of our moment in time that you'll have, um, again, going back to you know, frequency and vibration. Um, you know, I believe that time is, is all uh, operating at the same time, past, present, future. It's all It's all here. And you'll have two moments that their frequency will vibrate at the, at the exact, we don't know what the catalyst is, but for whatever reason, they'll vibrate in the same frequency and we'll get a glimpse of one or another. And so you, you hear these reports of people you know, witnessing people from another point in time, they're looking at them as if, they're the ghosts or the shadow or something like that. So, um, so some of these shadows are, are, are those or astral projections, you know, we never really think of, okay, you know, people know how to astral project and put their consciousness and their energy into another, you know, place on the planet or another place in the solar system. But I don't think we ever ask ourselves, okay, what does that look like on the other side? I think most people think, well, we're just invisible, but, um, you know, I think sometimes not we're, we're putting our energy out there. So there's there may be some sort of manifestation on the other side that's coming off as a shadow or some sort of uh, incorporeal form or something like that.
0: Wow. It's really interesting that it shows up as all these different definitions because most people would very much generalize it. And then of course, then they put it through a religious filter and they say demons or Mm -hmm. dark spirits or entities, but you're saying it could be a plethora of things, some nefarious and some very good and very positive.
1: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure. There are I get very simplistic about that word. (laughs) Think about, think about human beings to think about regular people. Some people are good. Some people are bad. Well, same thing with shadow people. Some shadow people are good. Some shadow people are bad. So yes, you do have the nasty nefarious ones that will, you know, do bad things to people. And Uh so, and and we hear a lot of those stories, you know, uh, people that are being terrorized by these things and that sort of thing, but then there are benevolent ones too, that actually help people. Uh, In my book, A Walk in the Shadows, there's several stories about that. Most I found are just rather benign. They're neither evil nor good. They're just kind of there watching and observing. Those are kind of the most commonly reported type of of shadow
0: entities. Yes, they've been in our history. If you read books uh, about 1800s, 1700s, these people have reported these entities probably for as long as history. You know, we could probably go to native cultures and find reports of them as well.
1: Yeah, you do. Absolutely. Uh, you can take it back as far as uh, ancient Sumer uh, or ancient Egypt, where they talked about, you know, the seven different parts of the soul. And one of those parts was the shadow of the Cabot which roamed around here on Earth after the uh, after the body passed away. And the other parts of the soul would go on to the afterlife, to the constellation of Orion. You see similar type concepts in like uh, Native American cultures where, you know, they, they also talk about multiple different uh, multiple parts of the soul And one of those being the shadow. And again, roaming around here on Earth. So you see all these cultures from around the world having these similar ideas and concepts about this shadow.
0: Oh, it's mind blowing. It's really mind blowing. And there is a component actually, because you've written so many books, there is a component that the shadow people play in Alaska's mysterious triangle, right? Yes. So let's tell people really quick, what is this triangle? Cause people know about the Bermuda triangle. That's obviously the most famous. And this is very similar to that. There's other triangles, but this is similar, right?
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. We have these different, we have these triangle areas all over the world. These, these areas on earth, they have uh, a variety of anomalous activity, like missing airplanes, missing people, ships. Uh, you have UFO activity, paranormal phenomena, you know, all this different sort of uh, phenomena that's going on. Bermuda, of course, is the most famous. Uh, you know, that that term got coined back in the 1940s, and uh, as people discovered more places on Earth that were having these type of phenomena, they started you know, naming these other areas uh, like the Alaska Triangle. People referred to it as Alaska's Bermuda Triangle. We uh, have Bridgewater, the Dragon Triangle. The Dragon Triangle is ancient. Yes, um, you know that. That's even that's even older. Uh, the activity has been known far longer than than the Bermuda Triangle. So, um, so yeah, you have these different uh, areas on Earth where this insane activity happens.
0: Well I've noticed that you did talk about that in your book, the Bridgewater Triangle, the Lake Michigan Triangle, the Nevada Triangle, and like you said, the ancient Japanese Dragon Triangle, which is pretty mind-blowing. But what area does the Alaska Triangle encompass if you could generalize it? Cause I know it's Yeah, a absolutely. Space.
1: Right, right. It's, it's never a perfect triangle. And so <laughs> the critics say, well, that place that you talked about over there is outside the area you said was a triangle. It's, like, it's not a perfect triangle, guys. Come on. It's, it's more it's more like a circle. Right. Yeah. And it's a magnetic you
0: know, field. So if you're like near, field, it, if right. you're near it, you're still going to be influenced by it.
1: Right. Absolutely. There's an epicenter and it extends out from that. But the three main points that uh, that we classify as being the triangle is Juneau in the south, Anchorage in the middle, and then at the very top of the state, Yukiavik, or the, the town formerly known as Barrow. And it's approximately like 180,000 square miles. It's wow. huge.
0: Yeah. That's pretty massive. I, I, would that be the biggest triangle then at of, of that type of activity? Um, between that and the Dragon Triangle is
1: pretty big too, because that, that extends from... Um, Japan to um, one of the Indonesian islands and then down way deep into the Philippine sea. So that one's really big too.
0: Well, one of the things I thought that was really interesting and actually scary in a way is that since 1988, 16,000 people have disappeared without a trace. And in fact, an entire Inuit village disappeared at one point. It's a very famous story about this disappearance, but that's a lot of people in a short amount of time. Why isn't this shouted from the rooftops?
1: Yeah, it's it's a lot of people in a short amount of period of time in a state that does not have a lot of people. Exactly. To begin with. I mean, isn't you that know? the whole it's,
0: population of Alaska at this yeah. point? Like, there's like five people left.
1: <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It, Alaska is about the population of the, of the city of San Francisco. But imagine if you just look at San Francisco is that 16000 people have gone missing there since 1988. You'd be like, oh, my gosh, that's that's insane. And it is. Uh, you're right. You know, there is an entire Inuit village there that disappeared um, you know, almost 100 years ago. Now uh, you've had well, it just 10 years ago here. Michael LeMater in the middle in the middle of a race. Uh, it's the Mount Marathon race in Seward, Alaska, and you know, so this is very public. And he's running up the mountain, never comes back down, totally oh disappears. God. They send out, you know, search parties are looking all over the place. Did he fall off the path somewhere? What? It's gone, completely no gone in the middle of a race. Nothing. Ah,
0: that's so mind blowing because this is things that happen at these other triangles. If you think about Bermuda and the Bermuda Triangle and how. The planes disappeared and all the history there, the missing ships. This is something very similar. So what do you think's going on here? I mean, what's happening?
1: Yeah, I think in, in a lot of these cases now, naturally, there's going to people, there are going to be people that get lost in the woods uh, in a place like Alaska. Someone might get mauled by a bear and dragged off. There are kidnappings and things like that. So there are some you know, very logical explanations for, for some of these, but this is a really large number. I think what's happening uh, we're talking about energy and vibration earlier. Um, and you have that, that vortex energy that's welling up from the Earth's magnetic core into, the, into this area and creating uh, you know, this anomalous activity mixed with, you got volcanic activity up there. You've got seismic activity with the earthquakes. You've got the solar flares. You know, the, uh, that's where the auroras come from. That's just pound, They're pounding the area. It's a thinner. Uh, we have a thinner magnetic shield up there. So you have this, you know, kind of soupy cocktail of all these different energies, and I think this, this is changing the vibration of the area. So you have things like portals that'll spawn, uh, you know, different gateways into different dimensions, points in time, and things like this. And you know, people just unknowingly, you know, they think they're walking down the path, and suddenly they end up somewhere else. And I'm looking around. But the path has kind of changed a little bit. What happened? Where am I? So I think this has happened with many of the, not just people, but also many of these airplanes that have gone missing too, just in the thin air.
0: So really, all of this geomagnetic activity, all of this solar magnetic activity, ethereal magnetic activity, all of this kind of coalesces at these triangles, specifically this one. And you're saying it could open a portal into another dimension. And these people are walking all of a sudden they're 500 years in the future, perhaps they're on an alternate Earth, perhaps they're on another planet even.
1: Yeah, they could be. I mean, they could be opening a... a Stargate to, to take you somewhere else an entirely other planet. Um, the, the example I like to, to give, um, you know, opening a portal to, uh, you know, some point perhaps in the past, you know, some of these airplanes that have gone missing. Maybe, maybe we do know what happened to them. Uh, you know, you have the, uh, you know, Native Americans, the indigenous peoples, you know, talk about these stories of Thunderbirds. Now, uh, a lot of the uh, ancient astronaut theorists try to relate these to, you know, alien aircraft and things like that, perhaps, or perhaps it's some of these aircraft that have gone missing. They disappear through a portal, end up five, six, seven hundred years in the past. Well, you know, an indigenous person at that point in time is going to have no context, no nothing whatsoever about airplanes, but what they see in the sky, they're going to relate to a bird and airplanes are very loud. Yes. You know, so you might have, you know, these might be some of these Thunderbird sightings.
0: Yes. You think about those world war one, two airplanes and they're mm-hmm. loud thunderous engines and your only context of a flying object is a bird and it's a thundering bird. I can totally see how that could be construed that way. So what is a difference then between a vortex and a portal?
1: Okay, so the uh, the vortex, <clears throat> excuse me, is that um, that energy field that is coming up out of the Earth's magnetic core. A lot of times, it's it's swirling, uh, you know, in, in some sort of funnel, and uh, basically, it's that that spawns off the portal. So the the vortex is the energy, and the portal is the uh, gateway or doorway that is created by the vortex the vortex can create a lot of different things the portal is just one thing that it could possibly create Uh, the vortex would also uh you know affect uh you know consciousness it'll affect um the you know the land around the area as it passes through like different metals and minerals and things like that uh in the earth it'll create all kinds of different fields and have a variety of different effects on the land
0: Yes, I've been to a few vortexes myself in Sedona and then mm-hmm. also here in Oregon we have a vortex. The Oregon vortex, it's not as cool as the Sedona ones, but yeah, you feel <laughs> that energy. Oh, you and there's do. something you do. going on there. I mean, and you're saying as this energy amplifies, it could create some sort of distortion field but which then opens up that portal. yeah, it can even
1: affect the weather. you know a lot of these a lot of these cases that we look into, you know, people are getting the the crazy compasses, you know the compasses are you know off the charts. What in the world's going on? And then all of a sudden, a storm kicks up out of nowhere. You know, that's Flight 19 down to the Bermuda Triangle. That's exactly what happened to them. Right? Uh, they they'd made a, a turn northward, their second leg of the journey. All of a sudden, the compasses are you know just operating in a bizarre fashion. And right after that happened, here comes the storm out of nowhere. In Alaska, we have the story of the of the Princess Sophia, which is very very tragic uh uh, accident with yes. uh, a ship in 1918 it was a passenger vessel uh over 350 people died and you know, it was one of those cases where you know this captain of the ship he'd run up and down the coast for years he'd done this hundreds of times he knew exactly where to uh where to travel down the lynn canal and yet somehow he ends up in the middle of the canal on top of the vanderbilt reef what in the world happened here well There was a large storm that had kicked up. Uh, The line of sight was not visible. They have to use their instrumentation. And it's believed that their instrumentation at that time was acting haywire. So again, you have this combination of storm and compass that is, you know, storm out of nowhere and the compass readings are just bizarre. And they ended up, unfortunately, on on this reef and perished.
0: Yes, I actually didn't know that story until I read that in your book. It's it's very tragic, but it also points to the fact that it's not just an aerial phenomenon. It's not just planes. It's people on the ground. It's people in the water. It's everything that's within this magnetic bubble, you could say.
1: Yeah, and that's a great way to put it. It's a magnetic bubble, and you know, since it is coming out of the earth and extending into into the into the waters into the air how do you avoid that you don't
0: right it's just really the entire space and in your book you pointed out that the u.s government even acknowledged the magnetic anomalies of alaska they did their own studies and found all different kinds of strange things
1: yeah, it's really interesting, um, you know, because a, a lot of times people, when we talk about these things, they'll, you know, say, "Well, that's just pseudoscience, et cetera, et cetera." It's like, oh, no, no, no. 1965, U.S. Department of the Interior surveyed. It was, it was only a sixth of the state, because you know, I mean, the, the state's massive, and people don't really realize it's and about a lot and of and its wilderness, time, the size of Texas. Yeah, yeah, a lot of its wilderness, very, very remote. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's really. It's really far out there. So they, they surveyed 100,000 square miles of a state that's over 600,000 square miles uh, in size. And what they discovered were what they called five different magnetic characters. And several of these characteristics they described as negative anomalies. So they're recognizing right there that, yeah, there are some very, very unusual things with the magnetic properties of
0: Alaska. So, when they recorded that, though, what did they do with that information? They just stored it and they didn't follow up on it anymore after that?
1: No, they built harp. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's an interesting I, I th- correct. I think connection. that's why they built harp up there, yeah.
0: And when did they build harp? I I don't remember off the top of my yeah, head. Yeah, harp was uh 1993,
1: but I mean they okay. would have had those those plans being formulated for for quite a while. Right. Uh, but and you hear, you know, different stories about um, you know, different secret military bases and things like that up there in Alaska. I mean, I was in the military uh, station three years up there. And I mean, there's all kinds of secrets and, uh, you know, places that are hidden up there. Uh, So we don't know specifically everything (laughs) that they were up to. uh, But you hear like, you know, secret bases at Mount Hayes or uh, Mount Denali, formerly Mount McKinley. Uh, So, you know, they could have been, you know, tapping into things there as well. And I believe Hart uh, was specifically built up there to well for a couple of different reasons one because you have those strange magne- magnetic anomalies there we're talking about the vortex energy being able to change the weather uh there's a lot of different theories and ideas about how harp could have changed the weather they did admit to creating an artificial aurora uh back in it was like 2005 2006 right so they could definitely affect the atmosphere i mean part of harp was to to study ionosphere and they were uh you know projecting these different uh low or low frequency waves into the ionosphere. And it's the the bounce back from that, the uh, you know, the ultra low frequency uh, waves that bounce back to the earth that could affect uh, people's moods. So that's where you get into the idea of, okay, is this also being used for uh, perhaps mind control uh, sort of technology?
0: It's quite possible. I mean, if you look at Nikola Tesla and you read his books, he talks about if you could change people's attitudes, opinions, if you use certain amount of electricity at a certain frequency, this was at the turn of the century. So they mm-hmm. had the technology.
1: They probably. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, where people kind of, um, you know, you shake their heads are like, you know, say, I, I don't believe that sort of thing is, you know, when you specifically say mind control, because when people think of mind control, it's like, okay, you're taking over a person's brain and telling <laughs> them to, you know, go take out that person or go rob a bank or go drive off a cliff, that sort of thing. Um, it's, it's not, Specific mind control like that. It's not like, okay, go do this specific task. It's mind control in the sense that you're creating a mood within the person. So, yeah, those electric fields will create uh, a certain mood uh, within your, you know, affecting your energy. So, you know, it might make you more depressed. It might make you more anxious. It might make you angry, that sort of thing. And then it, whatever you do, you do, but it's affecting your temperament.
0: How do you feel based on that? about all the various devices that we have the wi-fi the bluetooth all of these places where you go and you, you you turn on your your bluetooth and there's like 90 different signals coming in do you think that that's affecting us on a general
1: um, sense to, to a degree sure i mean those are all you know different energy waves that are that are interacting with our body and so you know if you look at it i don't know if it's still in some of the the modern um uh, literature that comes with cell phones but if you look at some of the uh the older ones it'll tell you um you know d- don't hold it up to your head <laughs> it's like, well, that's what you do with a phone
0: no it says that in the new manuals it says it, it says in the new ones too and okay Android. so it still does yeah yes all of the new modern phones it says please don't put it to your head like okay I have to, i'm a big fan of the speaker phone personally
1: yeah <laughs> so yeah all that stuff is gonna affect you for sure yeah
0: yeah but about alaska's triangle, there was a huge. Incident in 1972 that was undeniable because some state and uh, federal representatives disappeared. Can you tell us about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, it was a Cessna airplane uh, carrying House Majority Leader Hale Boggs, uh, Alaska Representative Nick Begich, their uh, the aide Russell Brown, and then the pilot Don Johns. um, You took off from Anchorage, headed toward Juneau, going through the Portage Pass, completely disappeared. Nothing was ever found. Fifty years later. Still, nothing has ever been found uh, of that airplane. Just, again, another one that vanished into thin air. Uh, it was the largest search and rescue mission to that point in time in U.S. history. Nothing found. They, they utilized spy planes in the area. Nothing found. Um, yeah, it's it's totally bizarre. You know, here is a, a high profile case. Right. Nothing. Absolutely nothing.
0: Something is going on up there. There has to be some sort of anomaly which is creating this, these disappearances. Something's, something big is going on there. Can you tell us a few of the other stories? I know a lot of these stories are detailed in your book, so everyone, right. if you want all of the stories, definitely <laughs> check out that book. But can you tell us a couple more, especially some older ones maybe?
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, The Douglas Skymaster in 1950, that was um, January it was, even though it was colder, it was a, still a nice day and taken off from uh, Elmador Fair Force Base, crossed over into Yukon Territory and then never heard from again uh, as they got near about the snag area into Yukon Territory. Uh, you know, thousands of people were, uh, were put into action. The, the United States and Canada were about to launch into some different exercises, play some different war games. So they had all this personnel at the ready. So they just told them, okay, instead of doing our exercises, you guys are going to go try to find this plane. Again, nothing was ever found. And you know, what's bizarre is a a couple of weeks later, there was a smaller plane that went down in the area and they found that boom right away. But this huge Douglas Skymaster plane, they never found a single thing. And there's a lot of different speculation as to what happened. This is one of those that I point to you know, could this be, possibly be a Thunderbird because it's a big, right, large, large, you know, World War II style airplane, you know, very loud. Did it go through a portal? But uh, other people speculate that there was some sort of extraterrestrial UFO involvement because of the UFO settings uh, that occurred around that time. There's uh, you know, very significant ones a couple days beforehand around Kodiak, which is just south of, of Anchorage, Kodiak Island. Uh, there was a Navy pilot who saw uh, several lights in the sky uh, around 2 a.m. that morning, then uh, several personnel on uh, one of the Navy ships in the area. Uh, saw one one said it was like uh, an exhaust. Uh, They saw a glow from exhaust. Another person said it was uh, like a large orange, you know, ball of light sort of thing. Maybe pilots saw it again. They caught this thing on radar. So there's a lot going on within several hours. Uh, It it was like from two to 4 a.m. that this was, this was going on uh, just a couple of days before Douglas Skymaster went missing a couple of days later after it went missing, there were more UFO sightings there uh, around Elmendorf. So a lot of activity going on at this one point in time.
0: Interesting. So there is a UFO component to all this. Of course there is. How could there not be? But I do want to touch on again, I, I let this slip by and I shouldn't have. Hale Boggs was a person that at the time was against the Warren commission which had been released as the definitive final answer in the JFK assassination. And right. he was the one holdout. I did w- not want to gloss over that. He was the one holdout that was saying, no, none of this makes sense. The testimonies were ridiculous. And then that is the plane that he was on that vanished.
1: Yeah, he dissented against the, the Warren Commission, which, of course, was not a popular move right. at that time. <laughs> <laughs> so he, had, he definitely had his, his enemies in Washington. And so there definitely are conspiracy theories that uh, you know, that he was taken out. So uh, some years back, there was an individual who came forward, and his his testimony was looked into a little bit by uh, the FBI, uh, even though they, they kind of closed it. But he was this um, person of interest that came forward. Uh, he was getting older, and he wanted to confess about a number of different crimes around the uh, uh, Anchorage, Alaska area. One of those happened to be. Uh, involved with the, the Hale bugs, Nick Nick baggage disappearance. And what he said was that he was contacted and and everything's, you know, redacted. You don't see any names, uh, but says contacted by an individual, (laughs) pick up this, pick up this briefcase, you know, put the briefcase on the plane. This is the plane that happened to be carrying them and it goes off. And he was told years later that, that uh, briefcase he put on there. And he he asked no questions. He's just paid, put the briefcase on there, walk away. Okay. Got paid. Uh, and he was told years later that that actually had explosives on it. The, the FBI kind of just, you know, they, they closed it. They didn't explore it because to them, if there was an explosion, they would have found pieces of the plane all over the Portage Pass. And still right. nothing has ever been found. And they're like, it's been decades and other planes have gone down in the area. Um, and we have still never found one shred of evidence of that Boggs baggage. But still, it, it leaves you wondering in the back of your mind, but what if it wasn't? They just haven't found the spot yet. You
0: know? <laughs> it's really, it, it's, it's hard to say because it's it, maybe he was saved. Maybe it was going to explode and somehow he uh, vibrated into another dimension or the extraterrestrials actually saved him. And now he's living somewhere else. Maybe <laughs> no, <we don't laughs> it's <know>. all speculation. <laughs> it is. Uh, speaking of speculation, you said that time travel may also be a factor in these triangle experiences, specifically the Alaska Triangle. Tell me about time travel, and also, I really want you to tell me about your stacked photograph theory for time travel.
1: Yeah, yeah, stacked time theory. Um, so basically, the idea that you know, um, you know, time time is a human invention. You know, it's, right. it's something that we've used to describe our reality. Uh, you know, we, we kind of see moment to moment, um, that sort of thing. Yeah. It, it helps us to keep track of the seasons, when to plant crops, you know, get to work on time, that sort of thing. Um, but I believe, and this is something that, um, you know, it, it's funny. I, I came up with this idea, uh, couple decades ago and then kind of doing additional research, I find that, oh, Einstein had like very similar ideas a <laughs> <laughs> well, hundred years ago. So yeah, it's not, it's not very original. Uh, you look at his ideas about the space time continuum, but, um, but yeah, I had been talking about, okay, what if, um, you know, time is just concurrent past, present future, everything that has happened is happening. will happen. Uh, you know, just take like where you're sitting right now, everything's there. Uh, we just can't see it. We're kind of bound and trapped in our particular moment for the most part. But every once in a while, we kind of alluded to it earlier, every once in a while, we don't know what the catalyst is, but two moments in time will start resonating at the same frequency and we'll get a bit of a glimpse of that and be able to see it for a moment. We'll you know, see some you know, person maybe in a Victorian dress you know, that's standing over there and you look at that. oh my gosh, is that a, it's, is that a ghost? It's a, it looks like a person. They turn and look at you as if you know, you're, you're the ghost or, or the shadow or whatever it is. Uh, so that's, that's what we would call a, a time slip, two moments in time that are able to see each other for a moment. So in a way that's like time travel. Um, but, and, and I think in places like the Alaska Triangle, Bermuda, that's able to happen more often because of that volatile uh, magnetism that, that's in these areas. I think for real time travel, we're so used to our science fiction, where uh, you know it's a DeLorean and a flux <laughs> capacitor, or, or you know some sort of some sort of machine that we jump into and boom. H.G. Yeah, Wells, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. H.G. <laughs> Wells' time machine, um, or you know, even our um, theoretical physicists these days are saying, well, you know, time travel could be possible. It would take such an immense amount of energy, and you know, getting close to a black hole and things like that. Um, and, and I don't think it's necessarily that complicated. I think we're kind of overthinking it. So, um, the movie somewhere in time, which is based off of, uh, Richard Matheson's book, uh, time return in this particular story, uh, Richard Collier basically projects his consciousness into the past. You know, he just wills himself into another point in time. Cause he really wants to meet this woman. Or, you know, it's a love story. He's got to meet the woman. Um, but he's able to, by convincing himself that he is truly back in the year 1912, in the, the book version is like 1896 or something like that. But by truly believing he is in that point in time and convincing himself he is, he is actually able to travel back there. So what that is telling me, even though it's a fictional story, I, I think it's, it's based on some truth. If we are able to, if we're convincing ourselves, we're putting our consciousness into a certain state of being, we are accessing a certain frequency, we're vibrating at a certain level as we are starting to believe these things. And I believe if we are able to really do that and establish we are in this time frame and get ourselves on that frequency of that moment in time, if each of these moments are vibrating at a different frequency, then we would be able to access it at will
0: that's pretty mind-blowing it it makes sense because if you think of consciousness being omnipresent outside of time outside of space and really even though as we we show up as these individuals we're actually this extension of this greater consciousness field if we can move ourselves to that consciousness field we can then move outside of space and time and plop our matter wherever we feel like we can go that sounds pretty authentic and accurate
1: yeah, and and I think that's what's happening with you know a lot of these these missing people. To them, it's happening unconsciously. They're, they don't understand that it has happened, but um, they are stepping into something. With these different magnetic fields that, um, that inadvertently change their vibration. You know, as they as I walk through this field, suddenly their uh, you know their frequency is changed, and boom, they're in this another uh, this another place in time. Well, what if we were able to control that and put ourselves there rather than It accidentally happening or we just get a glimpse, you know, if we could sustain it, then I believe that's what real time travel would be.
0: It sounds a lot like the Philadelphia experiment where they vibrated those ships and then they report being outside of time. So if you change the magnetics, you change the energy, you can pop in and out of the time stream.
1: Yeah, exactly. And if you look at you know ancient cultures, you know, they were doing a lot with, with magnetism and energy. You go to these you know different uh, you know sacred sites, you know the stone circles or the pyramids and in those types of places, you know it's the and the energy is still there at those places. It's not it's not as strong as it used to be because these you know, pl- these places are kind of broken down over thousands of years. Sure, uh, but you know they were creating these. Massive magnetic and energetic fields that they were able to walk into for whether it was healing, entering altered states of consciousness, and I believe uh, either time travel or you know stargates.
0: Wow. Well, well, we have a huge hidden history, that's for sure. I mean, you know, you delve into any of these topics and the authors and various speakers on these subjects, and you know that there's a lot more going on. And something was lost over time. It seems that we've devolved, but we're re-evolving. It's it's coming back to form
1: oh absolutely and it's and it's funny because um you know a, a lot of the you know traditionalists or mainstream um you know when we when we talk about well you know these ancient cultures have high technology and they kind of laugh and scoff at it you know we're, we're not talking you know they had laptop computers and, and cell phones it was a different type of technology we obviously you know lost knowledge because you know so many of these uh ancient structures we can't build today We just don't even, you know, we are doing everything, you know, Newtonian style machinery, all that. Uh, We don't have cranes that could possibly pick up some of these blocks. So they had some sort of technology uh, that they had created and established to be able to do these different things. It's just, you know, you could absolutely classify it as a high technology. It's, you know, better than ours in many cases. It's just not what we traditionally think of as technology like you know the camera that's in front of me or the computer that's sitting here
0: right it seems like ancient cultures seem to incorporate the spiritual element or even the multi-dimensional element to use consciousness as technology or have some sort of technology that was beyond three-dimensional space
1: yeah absolutely they, they definitely utilize uh more consciousness uh you know some of the different yeah. Um, you know some of the different, I guess, elixirs for lack of a better term <laughs> that they would utilize to enter it into some of these different states of consciousness. But they also, you know, they had, you know, electric energy. They use it for different things. Uh, you know, using the quartz crystals or the granite, which you know also have you know to create that uh, hazoelectric electric uh, electricity. And we just don't understand quite how they used it. We know that they did, though
0: interesting yes there is evidence there's plenty of evidence but in these magnetic fields though that are generated by these triangles there's reports that creatures have come through these portals you're thinking like sasquatch other cryptids tell me about that a little bit
1: yeah you have a lot of interesting stories about uh cryptids a lot of sasquatch hairy man type stories (laughs) up there in alaska um which hairy man would be like another type of Sasquatch. Sure. It's, it's like you have three different types of Sasquatch up there, hairy man, bushman, and then traditional Sasquatch. Um, <laughs> it's all very related. Uh, you have these, uh, uh, the Kushtaka, which is the uh, half, half man, half otter, which is very much like a Wendigo type of a story uh, where these things would lure people out into the woods and they might attack and kill the person or they might actually turn them into another uh, Kushtaka. So, um, so yeah, you have a lot of these different types of stories, the Lake Iliamna, uh, monster, which is like the Loch Ness monster of Alaska. So a lot of these different types of things are reported up there.
0: Do you feel like personally that some of these creatures are kind of vibrating between dimensions? Like they're here in our dimension for a while, and then they have the ability to shift their frequency and move to another place almost like instinctively or just part of their, their genetic makeup.
1: Uh, they could be, and they may not even ra- realize that they're doing it, you know, right. kind of like what happens with us sometimes is we're, you know, speculating some of these people are passing through some sort of field and ending up in another dimension, another point in time that could be happening with some of these creatures too. And then all of a sudden, you know, we see something that's not normal to our world and you know, people will get frightened to run off and say, Hey, I saw this thing. Um, and it could just end up after that moment or three minutes or whatever it is, just end up, you know. Uh, basically sinking back up with its own world.
0: Interesting. Wow. Like we said earlier, there's so much going on that we, we don't know yet. And a lot of it I would say has been hidden from us. So next question is what has our government or the Canadian government really just the world government in general done to cover up these disappearances in the Alaskan triangle? Because Like we said earlier, 16,000 people, that's recorded. Maybe there's even more. So it seems like there is some kind of suppression of information. There's some kind of cover-up happening to keep this from getting out more. What do you think about that?
1: Uh, I mean, yeah. whenever you talk about the government, there's always going to be some sort of cover-up. There's always going to be some story that goes along with it. Yeah, it's redacted. You try (laughs) to look up some of those documents. (laughs) The entire page is blank except for the word the. Right, exactly. You know, it makes it really difficult, unfortunately. But, you know, but then you have other governments like, you know, Japan back in uh, the early 1950s. They actually launched an investigation into the Dragon Triangle to try to figure out what was going on. Because they had a lot of fishing boats, government vessels, things like this going into the area. And so they got a scientific team, nine scientists. And then, uh, of course, there was the crew on the ship, a little over 30 people. They sent them into the Dragon Triangle. Never heard from them again. There was a bunch of debris that washed up. Totally gone. So the Japanese government said, uh, yeah, that that's a dangerous area. Don't go there anymore. They <laughs> so at least you had one government else. that was saying, yeah, we recognize it.
0: Wow. So they didn't want to lose anybody else. But what about pretty out in the open things? You think of like men in black stories or stories where people are intimidated. Do we have any stories like that for the Alaska Triangle? Um.
1: You know, from Alaska, I'm trying to think of men in black stories in Alaska. I, I can't think of one off the top. Or just of my like head. type
0: that where where, but, where government people but, will come and threaten you and, and intimidate you for for some situation that happened. Maybe it's not UFOs, but maybe it's well. Some I mean, experience.
1: you know, the the one up there that you know off the top of my head that I could think of would be like the um you know, the idea of the black triangle and the story behind that where. Doug Munchley, he was in the, uh, he was in the army at the time and he had seen, this is early 1990s Okay, and he had seen a, uh, a, a newscast about, um, basically what had happened was China was doing some nuclear testing and, you know, we, we knew this was going to happen. So the, uh, geologists got their seismographs and everything ready, uh, to, cause they're going to measure the, uh, the shock waves and everything. And when the shock waves hit that area, uh, Part of that report showed that, or part of those readings showed that there was this uh, pyramidal structure under what was then known as Mount McKinley or Mount Denali uh, under that area, and you know, uh, Munshler thought this was very, very interesting. So, uh, you know, he got in touch with family and friends, and said, "Hey, you know, when they show this uh, uh, this story again, you know, pay attention to it. This is pretty interesting." But it never aired again. And he didn't understand why. So he ended up going down to the news station and asking, hey, what what happened to this story that aired last night? I'm interested in it. Interested in it. And they told him, well, we didn't air that story. Don't know what you're talking about. So he was really disappointed. They basically were shooing him off. <laughs> and as he's about to walk out of the building, there was a junior uh, staffer that pulled him aside and said, well, actually we did air it, but there are some guys that showed up a few hours before you did and confiscated the tapes. Ah. Oh. So uh so this whole idea of the uh the black triangle or dark or I'm sorry uh black pyramid or dark pyramid up there uh is is really um really elusive because you have stories like that and there are other people that have come forward about you know with some details about the the black uh pyramid up there. I have but, heard about that. Yeah. But but all the stories are purely adult. There's nothing you can point at and say, you know, there's a there's a structure right there, and because that that's what happens. All you think about the the Great Pyramid of of Giza, uh, and we have all these different theories and ideas of what it was actually used for, and you know who knows who's right about it at this at this point. Um, and I have some ideas that I favor over than others, but there's a you know probably half dozen, 10 different ideas out there of what the Great Pyramid was used for, but we can point at the pyramid and say, there it is. <laughs> you, can't, <laughs> you can't do that with the Black Pyramid because it's underground. Um, right. So for, for the Alaska Triangle television show, for that for that particular story, um, they sent some guys out there at an airplane to kind of scout around the area. And they saw some abandoned human structures, like an abandoned road and a place that was obviously used for an airstrip and, and these sorts of things. So yeah. Humans were out there doing something, but was it for the black pyramid? Was, you know, Was there a way to get down into the ground from there to, you know, to check this place out? Yeah, don't
0: know. Right. Somebody knows, but we don't know Nobody yet knows. the general public. What do you think it would be? Let's say the black pyramid is real. It's underground. It's in Alaska. Just based on your own research and your own knowledge, what would you speculate something like that would be? Do you think it's a power plant or what do you think?
1: Well, and that's what you know people who you know believe that the black pyramid does exist. That's what they believe it, it is that it was a, an ancient power plant perhaps built by extraterrestrials that powered not only the area there in Alaska but was so powerful that it extended into Canada.
0: Oh. Uh, so
1: that would be that would be pretty massive.
0: Yeah, and it seemed probably to connect with the other pyramids that were out there potentially being used as power stations to create a power grid. It's quite possible.
1: It's, it's possible. Yeah. Especially in, in, you know, I look at the the great pyramid of Giza. I've been in it and there there's definitely a machine type, uh, of quality to it, you know, whether it, it very well could have been a power plant. Um, and I, and I like that idea with some different things like Hatshepsut's temple. There's a, uh, just a base of a pyramid there. Now, uh, there's a lot of ideas about Hatshepsut's temple being a stargate in that, uh, small pyramid off to the side of it would have been the power plant for it, the power source for the thing. Stuff like that makes sense to me. So, you know, when you start looking at different pyramids around the globe and you can start connecting them, uh, you know, so if the black pyramid exists, there's Giza, there are uh, pyramidal shaped structures down in Antarctica that, I mean, they're just satellite imagery because it's always been out there. It's very remote, but it looks like the one you're, it's like you're looking straight down and it's black in nature, by the way. It looks like you're looking straight down at the Great Pyramid of Giza, but there's snow all around it. It's in the Ellsworth Range down in Antarctica, so it's like, is is that an ancient pyramid?
0: So yeah, I saw that in your book. I thought the same mm-hmm. thing. I was like, oh look, it, it, that's actually a perfect pyramid. You know, you yes, see, yeah. see these Bosnian pyramids that are kind of buried in uh, roughage and trees, and some of these hidden Mayan period uh, pyramids that have yet to be uncovered. But this is pretty distinct, and it's in your book. You could see this pyramid
1: yeah yeah it's perfect and um there are other there are other structures there in Antarctica that that look like walls uh, or, or parts of ancient cities and things like that and you know we we know that Antarctica was not where it always or where it is now you know it is the continent has has moved um you know when they've done drilling they found they have found ancient jungles uh buried under there right and we also look at Know, ancient maps like the period reese map and a couple of others where they show antarctica with plant life and animals and things like that but right there on the map so somebody had visited there at some point in time and had observed life uh and so you know who who was that civilization who were they you know, what did they build and so i think one of the things that's that's going on one of the things that they're down there in antarctica looking for uh is some of that ancient technology tied to you know, the pyramids and some of these ancient structures where we don't know how they built them. Well, if there are buildings like that buried under the ice in Antarctica that nobody has touched for you know tens of thousands of years, possibly even longer, is that technology that was used to build them also buried there under the ice. And if it's something like anti-gravity technology or something like that, that's going to be very, very valuable to whoever finds it.
0: Oh, definitely. I believe a lot of our hidden human history is under that ice because like you said, there is that map. It shows clearly that it was a landmass and I believe there are stories of uh flash frozen vegetation and also uh, like woolly mammoths and similar animals that were just instantly frozen. So something happened very quickly, probably technological, but I have to ask you about your great pyramid experience in your yeah. book. You talk about how you seen shadow people. And earlier in the podcast, you mentioned it happened early in your life. So when you were in the great pyramid of Giza, did you have any sensitivities? Did you sense anything? Did you pick up on anything? Did you see anything?
1: Well, I mean, there's definitely a palpable energy within the great pyramid. Uh, there's, there's absolutely no denying that. And okay. it's just, it's just like ever present. Um, Is it thick?
0: It. would you describe it as thick?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and depending on where you are in the pyramid, you, know, you get, a different, kind of get a different feel between the subterranean chamber and you know the, the queen's chamber and the king's. It's all a little different depending on where you're at. And that might have something to do with air pressure and things like that, too. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, come on. Right. You know, we, we can't deny some of those things. <laughs> sure, sure, you know? sure. But um,
0: you do pick up on those things. It, I mean, you were it feeling
1: too. it. Absolutely. And I, I mean, it's one of those also you know you're in such awe Uh, i mean we had just our little group we had special private access for two hours there and i'm I'm doing some little experimentation thing like that and things like that uh, which i was not allowed to record Uh, the archaeologist that was there was like oh you can do this stuff but you can't record it because we can't have that stuff getting out into the public okay fine so when he wasn't looking i was recording it anyway (laughs) thank you but like you know, Tom Danley, uh, decades ago, did some uh, experimentation in there with uh, sound. And he's the one that came up with, you know, the, the pyramid being tuned to the key of F sharp and then the coffer there in the uh, in the king's chamber being tuned to the key of A. So I had a chromatic tuner with me and we did those. We did those tests uh, where we, yes, the uh, we, where we were in the um, that. Oh, what the heck is it called? The antechamber, okay. Uh, but between uh, that's just before the the king's chamber, and we're doing some ohms and and sure enough, you know F sharp, boom, you know the whole, and you can feel it when you do that in there. Uh, when we do some uh, meditative chants. That whole thing just vibrates. That's when it gets really really energetic. Boom, key of F sharp. Do the same in, thing in the in the coffer. Boom, it's an A. Okay, so we're, we're confirming uh, that experimentation. You know, it, as far as uh, Christopher Dunn's um, theory of the, the Giza power, power plant, um, there was, like I said, there's like a machine-like quality to it. In the Queen's Chamber, it has that, that niche in the, in the one wall where you know, traditionalists and mainstream try to tell you, well, there was uh, probably some sort of idol or statue or something like that in there. So you, you look into the niche and there's uh, one of those little um, kind of tunnels that kind of goes off to the, to the side of the pyramid. Uh, Human can't fit in. It's just one of those uh, holes that kind of goes off, but the whole backside of that niche, the stone is blackened and vitrified. So something was placed in there that was so hot it actually started melting the stone and burned it and i think that that hole was used as like some sort of exhaust for that so some sort of machinery was in there melting that wow and then the the coffer and i call it that not a sarcophagus because i don't believe anybody was buried there um when i was taking a look at that now uh, muhammad ibrahim was our tour guide he's been i mean native Egyptian. He's been doing tours there for over 20 years. Um, he's in the, he's in the pyramid all the time. I'm taking a look at the coffer and just, it's got on the back side of it, these three holes that are set in the stone and that backside, uh, is lower in height than the other three sides. And looking at that, it's like, okay, so something, yes, you could have slid a top of the, you know, right into place there and maybe you know pinned it in with those you know three holes but this is different than other sarcophagi and i'm showing this to to muhammad you know there's like another little lip on the inside and then again that backside is lower than the rest of it and he's looking at that and he's like you yeah, know i've been doing this for over 20 years i never noticed that, that backside was actually lower than the rest so the whole rest of the time that was very early in the tour last year the whole rest of the time, any place that we go that there's a sarcophagus, we're taking a look and we end up at the, the Cairo Museum at the end of it, um, there's sarcophagi all over the place. And not a single one was constructed in the same manner as inside the Great Pyramid, which tells us that dynastic Egyptians did not build that inside the Great Pyramid. If none of their other sarcophagi match what's in there, that was not them. They did not construct that. <sighs>
0: Uh, You know, right off the bat, I was thinking perhaps if you were laying in that and it was slanted, perhaps it made the blood go to your head, perhaps amplifying some meditative qualities or psychic situations, just speculation, of course, but that's fascinating.
1: No, it's, you know, and inside there, it's, you know, perfect 90 degree angles, you know, carved into this granite block. You know, the traditionalists are trying to tell us that, oh, this was carved with copper tools. You can't carve granite with copper um, it was funny, uh, at the, uh, at the Cairo museum, they have a, uh, a sarcophagus that's there where you could see that they were cutting off the back side of it to, to make a lid out of it probably. And, you know, there's this, uh, part of it's broken off, but then there's this line that goes into the stone and then stops. You shine a flashlight down in there and you see these circular marks. It looks like a circular saw know into the granite and i show these photos to my dad he's a he's a machinist he doesn't really know a whole lot about egypt or anything like that and a lot of these different topics that we talk about but he's a tool and die maker by trade he's he builds machines uh that's what he did for a living until he retired and so i'm showing it to him i'm like dad tell me what this is and he's looking at it he's like well it was it was made by a saw Okay. Now they, according to mainstream, they didn't, they didn't have circular saws back then. So that, That's some sort of circular saw, you know, top and bottom um, that it would have been running through.
0: Right.
1: And I'm like, and he's looking at that. He's like, that's granite. Isn't it like, yeah, that's granite. He's like, well, I'd be a, a diamond tip saw that they would have to use to cut that.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this have. Is ancient the, uh, technology here. There's yeah. No ancient technology. The,
1: the mainstream is going to tell you they didn't have diamond tip <laughs> saws back then. They, they're telling you that they cut this stuff with, copper tools or in other places stone tools. And it's like,
0: you're (laughs) no, it's all mind blowing. And of course I, we can't talk about the pyramids without bringing up the experiments. Maybe you don't know about this by the legendary band, the grateful dead who played in Egypt in 1978, their sound person. I don't know if you know this or not when they played their performance, routed a wireless microphone from the, uh, the, the main chamber of the great pyramid and it was supposed to broadcast a signal, It had power to broadcast a signal to the stage. And they were going to route that channel in with the, the instruments, but they could not get a signal out of there. But a lot of those guys, the guys from the grateful dead and the people that went on, that expedition with them, have some amazing stories, taking psychedelics there, of course, you know, in that time, but also doing sound experiments. Uh, One of their sound engineers talks about how he brought equipment in and he created a vibratory tone and he was able to see outlines of what he th- thought were ethereal beings that had Egyptian yeah. clothings and things like that, that somehow it may have created a time slip, like you were saying earlier, or, or some sort of situation. Were you aware of that at all?
1: Not that one, but um, Freddie Silva tells kind of a similar story, not, you know, not using grateful dead, music, <laughs> but um, where he and his group some years back, uh you know kind of like us it was a small group and they had some access there and they were in the uh, the king's chamber and they were doing some meditative work and all of a sudden the lights went out but they kept doing their uh their work and they were kind of uh you know doing like a little you know i think it was like a slight chant or whatever it was but it was auditory and as they were doing this there were these light beams that were coming out of the walls so um yeah fascinating stories
0: so there's something there, like some, oh, yeah, some, some energy is within those walls, whether it's full beings or residual aspects of beings or just some intermediary situation. There's definitely something supernatural there.
1: There's definitely something there. And with Freddy's story, they were interactive with them to oh, uh, at least a God. slight degree. So these, these were intelligent beings.
0: Oh, my God. <laughs> the mysteries never end, including Great. the mysteries of Alaska's mysterious triangle. Which I I will say this book, it's a really cool book because it's not only about Alaska's triangle, it touches on a bunch of other topics, remote viewing, UFO history, the history of giants. We talked about Harp earlier, you get a little bit of history of Harp. So if you check this book out, you're going to get a huge education if you haven't known about these topics before.
1: Yeah, I try to give a smattering of a little bit of everything in there. So you know, there's so much that goes on in Alaska. uh, You would be, you would need to like write a thousand-page book (laughs) and try to encompass it all. But you know, provide enough information to get the reader interested and allow them to do their own research as well.
0: Sure, I have to admit, I was not as aware of the situation with Alaska and the triangle. Of course, I knew about HARP and uh, the Inuit tribe because. That's very well-known in UFO circles. Some people think they were abducted. It was a mass abduction. Mm-hmm. But just the triangle itself, I really had no idea of that.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's really a lot that goes on up there. And you know, it still happens to this day. You know, people just suddenly go missing. There are UFO sightings, uh, shadow experiences, all kinds of paranormal activity. You know, so, and you never know if that, if that Baychimo ghost ship may show back up again, (laughs) he kind of slips in and out of time.
0: Right. Yes. There's the ghost ships as well. There's, there's so much going on. And did you, when you uh, were a part of the uh, Alaskan triangle TV show, did you have some revelations? Was there any new information that you gleaned from that experience?
1: Well, I mean, that, that kind of inspired me to, to write the book. Uh-huh. I spent those three years up there and yeah, I knew about the Alaska Triangle and, you know, interesting, crazy things that happened up there. I mean, I saw some crazy things right. when I was up there for sure. Uh, so, but being involved in the show, you know, inspired me to go back and you know do some additional research, tell my stories from, from up there as well. Uh, What was interesting, though, was it was really a shot in the dark. You know, we're talking about the energy of the triangle and um, the the Earth's energy and and things like that. Okay, let's try to find one of these telluric currents up there. Uh, You know, so we had EMF detectors and dowsing rods and that sort of thing. And sure enough, we're on the side of Flat Top Mountain because that's where they were interviewing me at Um, all day up there on the side of the mountain. Right. Right. Well, let's try this. And sure enough, I was able to draw a line from the top of Flat Top Mountain all the way down to Anchorage, which is supposed to be one of the corners of the Alaska Triangle. And it's like, well, here we actually found one of those currents. Yep, there it is.
0: So you were able to map that out with with dowsing rods, You're saying?
1: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I kind of describe it there in the book. But, yes, I um, remember that. Right. So I was going across the face of the mountain. Um, you know, there was this one spot in which you know the the one rod would turn in. For whatever reason, the other rod would stay straight, but the one would turn in. And then as I walked back out of it, it would straighten back out. Okay, that's interesting. So it did that several times just to confirm this is the spot where I I found that. Okay. Now, the other other test is to go up and down the mountain instead of across the face. And sure enough, that one rod stayed in as far up as I would walk. And then as I came back down, it would. So that whole, there was a whole line all the way down toward Anchorage.
0: So you found that telluric current and let's just remind everybody what that is. What is a telluric current for people that don't know?
1: Yeah, telluric current. So uh, people you know, commonly refer to these as, as lay lines, but um, you know, the, the lay is really the lining up of the different uh, geographic locations like standing stones, pyramids, temples, that sort of thing. Um, but they're lining up succinctly like that because the ancients knew to build on top of these uh, different uh, uh, lines of energy. Uh, These are, these are what we call like the, uh, the earth's energy grid. So those, uh, those places around the earth where we're able to access, uh, the energy for whether it's healing, entering altered states of consciousness, those sorts of things. But if you don't have a place like that built on top of there, you know, then it affects the area in a lot of different ways.
0: Interesting. Do Do you think HARP is creating an artificial telluric current?
1: Well, I mean, I think Harp is um, probably built on top of one. I'd have to go out there and, of course, you know, check it your out. next book. But, <laughs> yeah, this is the next book. <laughs> uh, well, we know that they're creating artificial auroras. So, is it doing something else to feed to, to push something into the ground? I mean, maybe. I think it's it's you know it's gaining some energy off the ground.
0: Interesting. Well, I'm really glad you're here. We we've had an incredible interview. I do want to tell people where to find you because this book is just about this one topic. Like I said, it touches on other topics, but you have a lot of other books as well. You have a website, your website, your personal website is MikeRicksecker.com. That's M I K E R I C K S E C K E R Mike Ricksecker.com. That's like ground zero. If you want to find Mike, Of course, he's contributed to the Alaska Triangle TV show, and we're so glad he did because that was the inspiration for this book, and that's how we connected, and he has a Haunted Road Media YouTube channel. If you remember, he's the one owning and running Haunted Road Media, edge of the rabbit hole YouTube channel Connecting the Universe podcast. We know people love podcasts. It's a new <laughs> media. Look, I want everybody to get off sitcoms, get off drama, fiction, TV shows. Let's get everybody on podcasts. That's really where we should go. ConnectedUniversePortal.com. That's another spot you can find him. He has the Shadow Dimension docu series. That is, like you said, on several streaming platforms. He has fiction and nonfiction books. And here are the fiction books Campfire Tales of the Midwest, System of the Dead, Deadly Heirs, Ghost Story and Case Files. And his nonfiction books are Encounters with the Paranormal, Volumes 1 through 4, which we can have a whole other episode on that <laughs> sometime. Oh, yeah. A Walk in the Shadows, and his most recent book, Alaska's Mysterious Triangle. I want everybody to go and check these books out. They're on Amazon. Check out his YouTube channel. Check out the podcast. Check out all of this stuff because Mike and I are very similar frequency people. We talked about frequency and energy. I feel like we're related. I feel like I can hang out with this guy all day. (laughs) You you have amazing energy. Thank you for being on the show. And before we go, is there... uh, Anything else you'd like to leave our audience with? Is there anything you'd like to tell everyone? 129 countries, we've now reached 129 countries.
1: Yeah, I mean you gave them all the websites, which is great. Uh, just to kind of you know clarify the Connect to Universe Portal. So that's an online learning site. So I have courses on like uh shadow entities. I have one on ancient Egypt. There's a membership nice. site there where you have the the weekly uh you know the weekly classes and all kinds of other, you know, articles and videos and things like that on the back end. So um so yeah, definitely check that out.
0: Yes, people, please check that out. And Mike Thank you for being here. Please hold through the outro music. And everyone, that was like, wow, what an incredible episode. What a flow. I love it when I have perfect flow with someone. We'll see you next week. Midnight on Earth.